Hey, if this is your first time listening, I strongly recommend going back to episode one, Where Warm Waters Halt, to listen to the story from the beginning. Okay, here's the show. Then, in the half-light of the canyon, all existence fades to a being with my soul and memories and the sounds of the big Blackfoot River and a four-count rhythm in the hope that a fish will rise. Eventually, all things merge into one and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. On some of the rocks are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. I am haunted by waters. These are the words of the great American novelist Norman MacLean from his book A River Runs Through It and Other Stories. It's a mostly autobiographical account of his time growing up in western Montana with a stoic pastor of a father and a wild risk-taking younger brother. However, the entire story is written on a simple, robust canvas depicting the rugged outdoor life, and in particular, fly fishing. Welcome back to X Marks the Spot. You're listening to episode eight, Heavy Loads and Water Hot. Although born a generation apart, it's obvious that McLean and Forrest Fenn were cut from the same cloth. Sure, there are many differences between the two men, but it's where their interests and experiences overlap that we find what truly defines them. Beyond the loss of a sibling and the love of adventure, the two men shared a profound love of the written word and a connection to the outdoors that could be described as religious especially when it came to the art of fly fishing. And that is finally where we end up, at the second-to-last clue in Fenn's poem, Just Heavy Loads and Water High. This clue, you'll remember, is a continuation of the previous clue, There'll Be No Paddle Up Your Creek. The previous episode had us in the water, fording the Madison River to be exact. After being challenged by Fenn, with the fifth clue, from there it's no place for the meek. He was letting us know we'd be getting in the water. This much was basically confirmed by Forrest himself when he cautioned people to, quote, bring a personal flotation device. That was during an interview a few years into the chase. But what does this clue actually mean? What are the heavy loads, plural, and water high that he's referring to? Well, as always, there are several ways to interpret this clue. Also, as a side note, this is one of the clues that are generally dismissed as unimportant, a clue that can be figured out later or massaged into an existing solve. As a result, few of the people we talked to had a definitive solve for this clue. They couldn't answer the question of, where would you be at this point in your solve if you were boots on the ground? 
Admittedly, we heard over and over again that the sexiest clues were Home of Brown and The Blaze. More on The Blaze in the next episode. Forrest himself said that if you could figure out the Home of Brown, you could walk right to the treasure. But still, the poem is a set of directions. And these so-called, quote, water clues, which are, from there it's no place for the meek, the end is ever drawing nigh, there'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. These clues are points along the map that let you know you're going in the right direction. It would prevent you from following a solve like Petra Perkins had for heavy loads and water high. So I knew it was Antelope Creek. So I followed Antelope Creek on Google Earth, and then I passed a place that looked like a whole bunch of big giant rocks, and that was the heavy loads, the the clue about the heavy loads. It was a whole parking lot full of giant rocks. And I also passed Tower Fall, which was water high. So I've got all those clues. And then following the road there, along Antelope Creek, and I saw the blaze. By this point in the search, you're not in a car driving along a highway. You're walking in the ancient footsteps of countless fly fishermen, of whom Forrest Fenn was just one in an unbroken succession of men and women who worshipped at the altar of Mother Nature. And wasn't that always Forrest's mission? To honor the land he loved, and to do his best to get others to appreciate it like he did? And what's more, taken to the extreme as Forrest often did, his love of this small part of the world was so intense and abiding that he wanted to die there. We can imagine that this area of Yellowstone Park, the fishing holes along the Madison River, gave Forrest such joy for his entire life. Think about how we all anticipated summer when we were kids in grade school. The freedom the complete lack of responsibility, the adventures, the time spent with family when everything made sense, the early romances, the time alone to figure out who we were and who we wanted to be. For Forrest, all of those intense and beautiful emotions were represented by one thing, Yellowstone. And to get more specific, fly fishing in Yellowstone. There was no place he'd rather be. There was no other place in the world where he felt more at home, where he felt more at peace. So much so that he wanted to spend eternity there, in a small stand of trees with no trails leading in or out, and the sounds of the nearby Madison River filling the air like a lullaby for the rest of time. In the 5th century BC, Greek philosopher Heraclitus wrote that no man ever steps into the same river twice, for the river is always changing, and so is the man. Forrest returned to the Madison countless times during the entirety of his life, seeking refuge in the spiritual and material abundance she provided, the sustenance from her depths, the counsel from her ancient wisdom. Because for Forrest Fenn, this river cradled him from his youth and spoke in a mother tongue. From the road at Nine Mile Hole, 
anything on the other side of that river belongs to the wilderness. There are no human trails. Occasionally, a few game trails can be discerned depending on the season, but otherwise, it could be considered pristine. Why is this important? Because then the river becomes a moat, a protective barrier between the things of nature and the things of man, and maybe a treasure chest. Forrest's relationship with the Madison River was a personal one, so much so that he counted on her to protect his secret, and protect it she did for over a decade. The river's involvement in the location of the chest has been hotly debated since the beginning, and she never spilled her secrets. She stayed constant and inscrutable, neither confirming or denying, exactly like Forrest himself, or like when Siddhartha returned to the river after a lifetime of excess and ultimately loss, and he's questioned and replies that for every true statement, there is an opposite one that is also true. That language and the confines of time lead people to adhere to one fixed belief that does not account for the fullness of the truth. Sound familiar? One fixed belief that does not account for the fullness of the truth? That's the majority of the search community in a nutshell. In a classic novel about a patient man who believes he can learn everything he needs from the sacred river. Now look, I'm not saying that Forrest Fenn was a student of the ancient Greeks or that he even read Herman Hesse or Norman MacLean. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. But what I am saying is that even a light reading of Fenn's books would let a reader know how intimately connected Fenn was to Yellowstone Park and the Madison River. As a thought experiment, if we completely remove the existence of monetary gain, and the task was simply this. Read these three autobiographies of this anonymous man and make your best guess as to where he would want his ashes scattered after his death and cremation. A very high percentage would answer Yellowstone Park, and several would even probably guess the Madison River. Yes, Forrest was a fly fisherman. The dichotomy of the sport, in a way, mirrors the dichotomy of the man. Wild, yet precise. Long stretches of inactivity, suddenly assaulted by a few moments of chaos. Like finding the calm swirls in a rushing river, or controlling several dozen feet of line, only to have your fly stall mere thousandths of an inch above the surface of the water. We need to look at this eighth clue from that specific point of view. Heavy loads can either mean the actual heavy chest he was carrying, and that you would soon be carrying, or the more specific fishing term that refers to the amount of fish in a given body of water. Lots of fish would classify a stream or fishing hole as carrying heavy loads. And likewise, water high has two possible interpretations, with one seeming much more likely, the simpler one, as always. The first deals again with fishing terms, known mostly within the community. The designation water high is something an angler would note in their personal journal, along with a date, time, and location. Water high simply means that the water is too high to safely cross. But 
Forrest knew that most of the people looking for his treasure were not going to be experienced anglers. So, water high in all likelihood was just letting people know that you were going to get wet, probably at least to above the knees. Now, there have been some truly creative and complex solves for this clue, including abandoned electrical plants. People suspected heavy loads were referring to electrical currents or massive boulders that would lead to the treasure. Many solvers had waterfalls as part of their solve for water high or the existence of a mountain lake high above their search area that let them know they were on the right track. But, as we've seen time and again, it's the simplest version that always makes the most sense. Forrest has been very clear as to the complexity of the poem. It's not. Simply, heavy loads and water high are observations made by Forrest as he slowly made his way across the Madison River. He included these observations in his poem so you could make the same observations and know that you were almost there. At the end of the previous episode, I mentioned that Jack Stoof did what nobody else could do. He figured out where Forrest wanted to die. And by doing so, he found the treasure chest that hundreds of thousands of searchers had their sights set on. So, how did he do it? Because for as much as Barbara Anderson, Dave Woodard, and several others claim to have solved the poem, Jack Stoof is the only one with the treasure. Frankly, it could be argued that he was the only one who actually listened to Forrest. And that holds true in two separate ways. The first is that he took Forrest at his word. He kept it simple. He always considered who Forrest the man was. His loves, his interests, what was important to him, and what wasn't. And ultimately, he understood how important Yellowstone was to him. The second way that listening to Forrest paved the way for Jack to find the chest is this. Jack claims that he found two slip-ups in interviews Forrest gave that were incredibly helpful with regard to doubts that Jack had regarding his solve in the early going. These slip-ups were actually the confirmation that Jack needed to crystallize his solve and ultimately find the treasure. He also stayed out of the chat rooms, unlike, say, John Morgan, who took the approach of many other searchers. So, you know, in retrospect, I feel a little ashamed. I don't know if ashamed is the right word, but I think a lot of my concepts for a solve came from reading message boards and seeing what other people thought. And there are a lot of armchair treasure hunters that everyone who posted online was so confident about the solution. And they, you know, people really, really thought without ever leaving their home that they had solved it. And everyone would post so confidently. And I got sucked into reading a couple of other people's theories. I would kind of assemble, you know, what I thought to be the most credible parts of other people's solves into into a solve that I felt like was like the best amalgamation of everyone else's work and then compare the original research that I 
I did on my own with maps and and that sort of thing. But you know, the reason why I say I'm ashamed is because when I read an interview with the alleged finder, he talks about how his approach was the exact opposite. You know, his approach was to try to read other people's solves as little as possible because it, it helped him avoid groupthink. And his particular approach was just trying to delve into the mind of the puzzle creator. That's one thing that I've definitely learned over time in thinking about this and other other endeavors I've been involved with is that the true puzzle isn't the puzzle itself, but the true puzzle is learning how the puzzle maker thinks. And once you can do that, then the answers always illuminate themselves. And it's clear that this guy who claims to be the finder of the treasure did just that, whereas my error was getting caught up into the group think of what other people had believed. So yeah, I would say in addition to the poem itself and some research with maps, my primary sources were kind of like amalgamating other people's ideas. Every other searcher who pieced together their solve from other solves all came to the same end. They, for the most part, inadvertently, were only drawn to aspects of other solves that confirmed an idea they were already set on. The definition of confirmation bias. Subtle, but powerful. And the only sure way to not find the treasure. And so, slowly, the search community, for the most part, came to accept that Jack Stoof had found Forest Fen's treasure in Wyoming and that he should be considered the legitimate finder. Even so-called search celebrities like Dale Neitzel. I don't disagree that Jack found the chest. I'm convinced. I was convinced long before Forrest died that uh, Jack had found the chest and that uh, he had found it in the park in Wyoming. You know, he won't say that, and I understand the various reasons why that would be a bad thing for the holder of the chest to say. And, you know, who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. But, you know, everybody's got to bet on something. And so I'm betting on uh, it it was in Wyoming in the park. And I think I know approximately where. I think I looked approximately where many times. And in fact, I I have never said this publicly, but I'll, I'll say this to you. One day, I went down to visit Forrest, fresh out of having searched. And the first thing Forrest said was, well, did you find it? And I said, no. And he said, well, where did you look? And so I recited all the places that I had looked. And we went out to lunch, and we hung out for a while. And finally, a couple days later, I took off. And so I'm saying goodbye to Forrest. And as I'm walking out the door, Forrest says to me, oh, by the way, you were within 100 yards of the chest. Just like that. That conversation Dale had with Forrest happened after a long boots-on-the-ground excursion that Dale had taken in Yellowstone. Dale is convinced, but then again, Dale has always taken a healthy, honest view of the search. And of Forrest. The other searchers we spoke with are far less willing to admit defeat. So when I asked for the subpoena to who the finder was, since they were keeping that confidential, then, of course, we find out it was former Onion writer Jack Stoof. So now we've got the Onion, you know. And now we know our finder is questionable. 
which I suspected of all along. And there's no way it's in Wyoming. Anytime you hear the word subpoena in relation to something that was supposed to be fun for everyone involved, something has gone very wrong somewhere along the line. Then there are searchers like Dave Woodard, still convinced of a conspiracy to prevent him from getting what he thinks is rightfully his. They're saying Jack did it in a year. There's no way he did it in a year. And this is what the sad part is. I believe that when Forrest knew that I solved it, and he said, the man from the East, whoever is in front or like behind Jack, Jack's a front man, I believe, is what's happening right now. Jack, Jack's face has been put up front as a cover. Now, when I sent Forrest that picture of the actual cross, Forrest got screwed over at the end. He got forced into admitting, just saying, okay, I'm going to announce that it was in Wyoming just so the, to stop the lawsuits, to get people off his family's back and uh, end everything. So we're left with few answers and no proof to substantiate the claims of wrongdoing when it comes to the finder, Jack Stoof. What we do have is unprovable claims from fellow searchers with an axe to grind and a lot to gain. But again, a nagging and undeniable lack of proof that would allow us to definitively say that Jack is a fraud. Right? I mean, Jack's the guy. Right? After all, he has the treasure chest. More X marks the spot after the break. This is Ben Napple, a newly minted search celebrity whose quick wit, inquisitive mind, and propensity for disruption has the search community taking notice. Ben was asked for his reaction to the news that the treasure was finally found in the summer of 2020. My first reaction is no fucking way was this found on June 5th, 2020. That is way too much of a coincidence when inside the book we have date stamps like on a postage all throughout each chapter. And most of those postage stamps seem relevant to the story, but for the treasure chapter, the one that gives us the poem, it says Friday, June 5th, with no year. Magically, the chest was found on a Friday, June 5th. That's a mighty big coincidence. That's the first thought I had. Whoa. That's actually true. At the beginning of every chapter in Forrest's book, The Thrill of the Chase, There's a vintage postmark added for artistic value and intended to instill a sense of nostalgia when coupled with the black and white photos alongside them. And, yep, at the beginning of the chapter, Golden Moor, there's a beautiful picture of the actual treasure chest and stamped right over it is a small, circular postmark that reads, Friday, June 5th. Coincidence? Probably. Ben Napple came very late to the chase, and at first, he didn't engage with the community at all. He lurked. So uh, a lurker, and this can happen anywhere online, right? If you like to view message boards or go to Reddit message boards and read the conversations that's happening on whatever topic, and you're engaged with those conversations and you're reading it daily, but you don't actually interact yourself. You're lurking from the shadows. You're a lurker. But eventually, he decided to join the fray. I decided to at least come out of the shadows as a lurker. I went to Reddit. I started to get a little vocal on Reddit then. And my username on Reddit is just my first initial last name, so I didn't really want to use that too much, noticing that the searchers in this community are very strange. So I went to Thor, which was 
thehintofriches.com. And it was run by someone named K-Pro who does most of these YouTube videos that I would watch and had like the highest viewership. It seemed like a hub. She knew the Fen family. She had been at the Fen house. So I went to that website and I put up a username and I started interacting with people, asking questions, going, are we really supposed to believe this bullshit? You know, I would kind of poke and prod and start to, you know, stoke the fire, if you will. And then got into fights with people claiming that they were still the solver. And I was like, listen, if you don't have a picture with the chest, you don't have shit. Stop talking. Next. <laughs> I was kind of a, I was, I was a little trollish because I wanted information fast. Disruption. As we've seen time and again, whether it's in music or sports, politics or technology, a disruptor is often needed to keep everyone honest and operating at the top of their game. You know, it seemed like the main players who do the YouTube shows were all starting to question things also at the same time. Like there wasn't enough satisfying of an ending, and that actually led to questions being asked, and it, I think, happened to lead to the right questions being asked. The chess might have been found, the chase might be over, but the ending has way too many plot holes in it here. And we're just questioning the plot holes. There must be something else going on. We don't have to outright call people liars, but it seems like lying by omission, you know, seized the day here. As we can easily imagine, the fact that the finder announced that he wished to remain anonymous had the search community enraged. The conspiracy theories immediately began to fly. But Ben took a more pragmatic stance. I think between the time of 2010 and 2019, we have four searcher deaths and a fifth one to happen in early 2020. You know, that just maybe even taints, soils the location, if you will. And even a finder doesn't want to be part of any kind of lawsuit, wrongful death suit. And so already there's reason for secrecy. And further, he even educated himself with the legal implications of a hidden treasure on government land and how recent changes in the laws may have led to the finder's desire for secrecy. I think what they did was make the laws stricter on the code dealing with abandonment of property around 2014, 2015, right around the same time Fenn actually consults lawyers again. So according to the code now, and I'm no lawyer, but according to the code now, the purposeful abandonment of property is already illegal. And then Jack not turning that said property into the superintendent of the park is also illegal. There's two illegal acts. And if they had emailed each other on how to get around this, then they are conspiring to commit fraud against the federal government. I mean, that's as simple as it gets. And the Condor 2, which uh, those of us in the chase have now been able to, with 99.9% certainty, Condor 2 is Jack Stoof, or at least the finder of the chest. He stated in late 2019, Forrest Fenn wants the finder of this chest to be a maverick. Sorry, Forrest, we don't all have your lawyers. Okay, so beyond the laws of abandoned property in a national park, there's a lot to unpack there. Specifically the mention of the Reddit handle Condor2. Internet sleuths, Mr. Napple among them, have discerned to a high level of certainty that Condor2 is the alias of Jack Stoof. And Condor2 is very active in the chat rooms. At least he was. And pay close attention to the dates that Ben is throwing around. He just mentioned late 2019 and something about lamenting the impending need for lawyers. That's important, but more on that a little later. Our conversation with Ben shifted to the open question regarding whether or not Jack Stoof is a plant, a shill, 
handpicked by Forrest to be the front man, as Dave Woodard suggests. Although it seems painfully clear that Forrest could have found a much better candidate, more groomed and ready for prime time, and more digestible for the search community. Couldn't he? Again, we get a thoughtful, reasoned response from Ben. He's imperfect on the surface, and that's my first argument. However, when I listen to some of the conspiracy theorists, there is logic to a certain degree where they say, yeah, he's a bad pick on the surface. However, he has shown, at the very least, he knows how to handle hate like no one else's business, specifically in the online world. And he did so 10 years ago when he was just getting going. So he's a writer for The Onion. He knows how to write with wit, candor, humor, I guess, if we want to say humor. And from that, was able to diminish his online profile to nothing, come back... It's just, it, it, you, could, you could make an argument that if you were going to have someone who needs to take the heat, take the attacks, be called a liar, be called an asshole, be called a conspirator, it would be someone like a Jack Stu. But I would need a connection. You don't just pick him out of random. He'd have to be like Ben's nephew's best friend or some shit. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I know that if you're picking someone, you probably don't want to trail back to you. But at the same time, I don't think you also trust everything to some random dude who, you know, made fun of an autistic baby. What Ben is referring to here is an extremely unfortunate attempt at a joke that Jack Stoof wrote in a tasteless attack on the daughter of one-time vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin. The daughter was born with Down syndrome. It seems that if Mr. Stoof was handpicked, it would be a gross understatement to label him imperfect. When pressed to explain away the simple and unavoidable fact that Despite all the conspiracy theories and saber-rattling of searchers who question the validity of Stoof as the finder, despite all the other perfect solves that somehow were all usurped by the same guy, despite all the lawsuits brought by the so-called true solvers, Jack is the only one with the treasure. Case closed, he's the guy fair and square. What say you, Mr. Napple? So I I would welcome the argument. The same person who said he wanted his anonymity said that a court issue was causing him to reveal himself. Okay. He didn't have to write another word after that, but he did. He gave us plenty to work with, actually. And in those words, as usually happens, guilty parties could hang themselves with their own words. The argument back would be, I'll start it with a simple one, which is the end of the poem. If you've been wise and found the blaze, look quickly down your quest to cease. Jack, in his description and accounting of things, found the chest first and then looked up and found the blaze. That's not how the poem goes. That's not how the solve goes, right? We don't know the solve, but that's not how we were alleged unless there's something else going on. But Jack has told us this now. Okay, weird. He said the blaze was damaged and couldn't be hardly recognized. People have raised the indication of Fenn saying it's not feasible to remove, but does that mean damage? Who knows? But the blaze wasn't there as Fenn intended. Okay, weird. Fenn had always said, my nine clues will lead you precisely to the spot. Jack had to scour the same search grid for 25 full search days, even if that's spread out over two years. That's not precise. He said he walked over the chest two times before even realizing what it was. He literally stumbled on it. No one's going to stumble upon my chest, is what Forrest Fenn said. Jack literally stumbled on it and then looked up and found the blaze. That enough to me goes, okay, I'd really love to hear the solve here because it seems to be the opposite of everything. 
Like if you had lottery numbers, you literally didn't hit a single one. Okay. So if Ben's confidence seems a little brazen and unwarranted, fear not. He has an ace up his sleeve in the form of tracking information that was offered to him by an employee of Reddit. It's important to reiterate that this information was offered to Mr. Napple, who perused it before he realized what he was looking at. But then he looked at it a little bit more. Okay, a lot more. Well, I'm on the record for some of this, and maybe Jack, this is why I haven't heard too much backlash from Jack, but some of the things we've uncovered via Reddit and Reddit information has proven some of Jack's story. For instance, Reddit has some kind of thing that we all agree to, that they have our locations. For whatever reason, information was given to me that had the information of Jack's locations on his search days via all the times he logged into Reddit. And that this information confirmed Jack was, in fact, at West Yellowstone uh, on June 5th. When you go inside the park, you lose service. So he doesn't have a hit on the Madison River, per se. Uh, But he is in West Yellowstone on June 5th, and he is out of there on June 6th and heading down to Santa Fe. He also told us he stopped at a national park on the way down prior to meeting Fenn, which also doesn't make sense. You just found Forrest Fenn's treasure. Uh, You also stated that you were paranoid that people even saw you at the spot with it. And now you're making a pit stop to another national park on your way down? That's weird. And then he, he actually confirms that and, and, and says he did. Uh, this information confirms that. But it, it, he actually turns out he went to a national forest, not a national park. The information said he was there for a while. There was no hotel stay like he said there was. He drove straight through and ended up in Santa Fe. So some of his story gets corroborated through the leak from Reddit in which the source of that leak came onto my YouTube show. It's available for people to see if they want. So, after tracking Jack's movements, Ben and his partners were able to piece together a fairly precise timeline of events. It's just not the timeline of events as we were told. There was more to this Reddit leak. Alleged tracking information that refutes the statement, so what? Those pings just prove that Jack found the treasure in June just like he said. Nope. The counterpoint would be the same information that confirmed Jack's location around the time of the find, that information also tells us he was in that same area of West Yellowstone a year prior in April of 2019. And at that same time, in April of 2019, he then is in West Yellowstone, goes into the park, because there actually is service in the middle at Canyon Junction, goes through the park all the way to Hell's Half Acre in the middle of Wyoming, decides to turn around, go back to Yellowstone, and then turn down, go south, and go down straight to Santa Fe, which is, of course, where Force Fen lives. Now, why would you immediately leave Yellowstone and go down to see sites at Santa Fe? I don't know. The speculation would be that Jack found something in April of 2019 while boots on the ground, notified Fenn via phone call or email, and for whatever reason, this information that was provided to Forrest was enough for Forrest to go, hey, come down to Santa Fe. Don't tell anybody. And the information I would speculate would be that Jack figured out Home of Brown at this time and emailed Fenn what Home of Brown was. And this is at the same time where Fenn is dealing with a legal nightmare of a man trying to invade his home who wanted to kidnap his granddaughter. So there was incentive at the exact same time Jack is going down to Santa Fe for Forrest to be calling off the chase because his family has now been put in danger for I think the third or fourth time at this point. So we don't know what he did in Santa Fe, but we know that 
Jack had informed the search community through his YouTube page that he put a FOIA out in February for a New Mexico tourism video that was an interview with Fenn about an hour long. He lied about that. We FOIA'd his FOIA. And it turns out his FOIA was requested and received back all within a week in April of 2019, the same time in which he then immediately goes to West Yellowstone and then immediately goes down to Santa Fe afterwards. This is where it all starts. This is where it starts to get juicy, where the house of cards begins to teeter. According to Ben, Jack Stoof FOIA requested an interview that was created and owned by the Santa Fe Bureau of Tourism, a government agency that was susceptible to the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, requests. Jack learned something important in that video and immediately went to Yellowstone. And his next stop was Santa Fe. Ben believes that Jack figured out the location of Home of Brown, sent Forrest that part of his solve, and was invited to Santa Fe to talk things over with Forrest. What's also very interesting about this specific timeline, alluded to by Ben when he mentioned the recent deaths of searchers, is a statement made by Dale Neitzel in our interview in November of 2020. Dale went quiet after the search came to a close. He shut down his blog and went back to his normal life. But then in July of 2021, just this past summer, Dale briefly reemerged to share a few emails from Forrest detailing his desire to call off the chase. Little did we know that Dale let that particular cat out of the bag to us eight months earlier. About the time that the chief of the state police in New Mexico asked Forrest to stop, at that point he was considering it. Outwardly, he was defiant, but inwardly, he was considering it. In fact, at one point, he wrote me an email and he said, Dale, I'm considering shutting things down. What do you think? And I said to him, I don't think it's a good idea. Here's what's going to happen. If you shut it down, people will say it never was to begin with. If you shut it down, it it isn't going to bring back anybody who's already lost their life. And if you shut it down, tens of thousands of people are going to be extraordinarily disappointed. And I don't know whether or not what I had to say had anything to do with his decision but his decision was not to shut it down. Only in the light of Dale's announcement in the summer of 2021 did we realize what he had casually relayed to us and the impact it would have on how Jack was viewed in the search community and the questions it raised as to the possible involvement of Forrest himself in a scheme to get himself out of a nearly impossible situation. All this tracking information begs one simple question. Why did Jack wait more than a year? If he figured out Home of Brown in April of 2019, why did it take him until June of 2020 to retrieve the chest? So over that year, we also know that the Condor 2 is the same person. That's how we're tracking this location information. So if we go backwards and then see what the Condor was starting to write after all this happened, maybe it gives us a window into what's going on. Well, 
just so happens after this Yellowstone Santa Fe trip in April of 2019, the Condor 2 writes a post that says, okay, you found the chest, now what? And he, he proceeds to then write a post that's a, a couple paragraphs long, stating a hypothetical O.J. Simpson, if I did it moment, except it's with finding the chest and what to do now. It's a legal nightmare. There's tax implications. That happens in April 2019. Let me fast forward a little bit. Right around fall of 2019, the Condor is making posts saying that it's a legal shit show. Fenn wanted a maverick to find this. And sorry, Fenn, we don't have your lawyers. Then at the end of 2019, the Condor then posts, you know, the solution to this would just be finding a tax haven in Puerto Rico and then establishing residency, then getting the chest. Well, what have we learned through research and investigation through anything legal? It seems like Jack himself established residency in Puerto Rico and has residency in Puerto Rico now, which matches exactly what the Condor said he was going to do. And again, all of this before the find. So it seems as if Jack gets information in this meeting with Forrest because of the home of Brown. Jack is able to then pinpoint where the chest is and then is faced with, oh, fuck, I have a legal shit show on my hands. This is a nightmare. That's what he does. Mo money, mo problems. Am I right? So Jack needed to get his ducks in a row before he collected his windfall. Makes sense. But despite leaning in the direction of a massive conspiracy that would involve Forrest Fenn himself and would completely destroy all credibility surrounding the chase, it's not all shade from Ben. Even the conspiracy theory has to involve something where Jack knew something the rest of us didn't. It's the only way he could get Fenn's attention. The only logical conclusion based on the information we've been given is that it's home of Brown. Now, maybe that's confirmation bias in the fact that people after the chase asked Fenn, and this email has been talked about back and forth, and so I don't want to hope, I hope I don't get anything wrong here, but Forrest Fenn was basically given the option to state if anybody had said the correct home of Brown. And in either version of the story here, he states back, only the finder has told me home of Brown. The implication being the finder told him home of Brown afterwards when they met together and they went over those items in the chest, but the conspiracy theory would state, no, 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 Jack told Fenn home of Brown in the beginning, and that's when Fenn took interest in him. We hear that Jack called Fenn to tell him about a fake blaze a thousand feet away, and that's only half the story. Even Jack himself invites the conspiracies when he writes, and that's only half the story. Well, what's the other half, man? <laughs> and putting his passion aside for a moment, he conceded this with regard to Jack's alleged solve. Because of everything I've gotten, specifically with the Condor 2, more things that I've gotten that I can't confirm uh, because I would out people, I do believe it was along the Madison River in Yellowstone Park. Also, Ben isn't done with the chase. He's still working on a solve of his own, one that he believes will allow him to follow in Forrest's and Jack's footsteps and bring him right to where the treasure was hidden for so long. What's his solve? My own Yellowstone solve involves Nine Mile Hole, but Nine Mile is a trap. It's a Wizard of Oz solve, and you have, you're the Tin Man at this point in the poem, and you're stuck at Nine Mile Hole, and you need something to tell you as a confirmer that you're going to be unstuck. Well, lo and behold, at Nine Mile Hole, Jack himself pointed this out with a picture. There's a tree that has carved on it, O-I-L. And Jack doesn't explain it, he just shows it. 
Yeah, oil. Now, oil unstucks the Tin Man. You actually then leave Nine Mile, but I think Nine Mile is key to the solve. The poem plays with time. My solve at Yellowstone that I've worked on now is basically there's two movies. It's Wizard of Oz and Back to the Future, and you need both to solve the poem, which would make Home of Brown Doc Brown, just FYI. I know. I'm crazy. What? No, no, no. Not you, Ben. To his credit, he admits his craziness immediately, so that's something. But Doc Brown? As the interview was winding down, Ben mentioned something about the real reason Forrest wrote the memoir and what the, quote, real treasure was. Something that we haven't discussed before in this podcast. But we have to now, ahead of what Ben is about to reveal, is that in addition to gold and jewels, Forrest stated that there were other items included in the chest. Items that only the finder would have earned. First, there were strands of his hair. And second, there was a story. One last piece of writing from Forrest that would reveal... What? Well, no one knows except Jack. And maybe Ben Napple. After the break... So part of the process into figuring out Forrest Fenn's maybe conspiratorial identity started with my decision of understanding what the heck this treasure hunt was all about. And part of that is Forrest put in strands of his hair for DNA and a story no one's heard before. Now, on the surface, he claims he's hoping that, you know, if somebody finds this in a thousand years, They'll know the crazy old man who did it. So they have my hair. Forrest, we're on the internet. It's all permanent. They'll know who did it. (laughs) The hair's there for a different reason. It's DNA. There's a story in there he won't tell anybody about. Only for the finder to find out. There's something else to the treasure hunt. I think it's a secret identity. Which then led me to believe, through countless hours of research, that there's a strong possibility he could be D.B. Cooper. Hold up. What? Okay, so D.B. Cooper is an enigma of American pop culture. In 1971, a man who said his name was Dan Cooper walked into the Portland International Airport and bought a ticket to Seattle, a 30-minute flight north. Once in the air, Mr. Cooper ordered a bourbon and soda, then handed the flight attendant a note informing her that he had a bomb. His demands were to land in Seattle, allow the passengers to disembark, fully refuel the aircraft, and provide him with four parachutes and $200,000 in cash. The demands were agreed to, and once the Boeing 727 was back in the air, he told the flight attendant to join the pilots on the flight deck and lock the door. Then, at approximately 8.13 p.m., Somewhere over Lake Merwin in Washington State, the pilot noticed a change in cabin pressure and a sharp jolt from the rear of the aircraft. It is assumed that was the moment Dan Cooper opened the aft staircase and jumped out. One of the most interesting things about D.B. Cooper is that according to law enforcement, he's a complete phantom, no driver's license, 
no social security number, no tax records, no employment history, no records at all that prove a man named D.B. Cooper ever existed. So who was he? Could he actually have been the man we all know as Forrest Fenn? It would take a man of adventure, a man of courage, a man comfortable with jumping out of an aircraft, a man who thinks he's smarter than everyone else, a man who... Wait a second. He, he knew enough to have nothing. He knew enough to change his identity. He knew enough to create bombs that looked fake. He knew enough not to actually put anybody in harm's way. He knew enough to empty the plane. He knew enough that the plane needed to be refueled. He knew enough that the plane's refueling was taking too long, and that there were snipers outside. There were no movies. There was no internet then to tell you what happens. He knew everything about the procedures of the unloading, the offloading of the passengers. He kept the stewardesses on. He requested four parachutes because he knew that the FBI would give him a faulty parachute. Lo and behold, when the four parachutes arrived, two of them were missing something called D-rings. Well, lo and behold, Force Fenn loves to tell us in all his stories, I prayed for D's. It doesn't matter the context. You don't need the context. That guy will say, I prayed for D's in the middle of any conversation possible. He would just throw that in there. No one knew why I prayed for D's. What does that even mean? Well, D.B. Cooper's D-rings were missing. He'd be praying for D's if he was falling to his death right then. So this person is smart enough through experience to take the parachutes that work. He takes the military-grade parachute that was antiquated by about five years. Right around the same time he was in the Vietnam War, parachuting from his own plane, he got shot down twice, and then one time parachuted in. He's already parachuted before. So we have a lot of similarities in terms of knowledge, but then what we do have is timing, and the timing is Forrest Fenn, who states all that wartime gave me all those medals and all that valor that meant absolutely nothing, and I was stuck with a $1,000 a month pension with a family of four. Come to think of it, Forrest didn't come from money. His wife wasn't from a wealthy family either. He was fresh out of the military with a family of four and living on a military pension. He had a dream to open an art gallery in Santa Fe, but did he have the money to do it? Forrest Fenn ran into some kind of money to start his fancy art dealership. Lo and behold, D.B. Cooper ran into money right at the same time. There are also other similarities or coincidences that are, let's say, interesting to consider. Also, by the way, this person, D.B. Cooper, also allegedly wrote a treasure hunting book called Ha Ha Ha, which is a book telling how he was able to pull off the heist that he did against the government. And, oh, I have hidden my loot somewhere in the country for you to find with my seven clues in the book. Who does that sound like? D.B. Cooper says this in the book, ha ha ha, I needed to pick a 727 Boeing. That was the only plane available commercially that had an aft staircase. The aft staircase is what he would use to eventually jump out of the plane with his parachute and the money. Here's the issue. No civilian knew that 727 Boeings had aft staircases because the CIA was using them to fly missions in Laos. When I jumped out in Laos, it had gone through my mind so many times that the bailout procedure is, is, is critical. I wanted the thrill of floating down in a parachute and I, I, had, I had elaborate plans. So they both wrote treasure hunting books and they both had knowledge of aircraft. Oh, and they both came into money at the same time. 
But did they both know about the aft staircase on the 727? Would Forrest have had that information? Only familiar with if you were within the government. So Fenn fits that criteria. And frankly, even if you're Air Force, you've got to be in CIA to know that these 727s are doing these classified missions. Everything's compartmentalized. If you weren't part of those missions, you didn't know. I have two different searchers who had personal relationships with Fenn. Both say that he has confirmed he was CIA. Okay, kind of a big scoop there. Let's move on. So D.B. Cooper slash Forrest Fenn survives the jump from the plane, but according to the book Ha Ha Ha, the pilot was tricked and mistakenly believed that the hijacker jumped out while still over Washington State, when in reality, the jump occurred two hours later, while the aircraft was over Nevada. And his plan now is to go to Vegas first and basically wash the money. It's too soon for the circulation numbers to hit, because it's just happened. And if he can exchange the money in a casino real quick, he's got 200,000 clean dollars, which is, of course, what happens. And then he splits that 200,000 clean dollars into a purchase of silver. He purchased the last silver minting of the 50 cent pieces where it was silver in actual, it was real silver in there. So he spent about 50,000 in that that is now worth about a million. And then he dispersed the rest of the money in Canadian banks. And then Forrest Fenn opens up his million dollar art gallery one year later. Mr. Napple concluded with a rather stark pronouncement. We'll leave it up to you to decide. Either the dude took artifacts from his secret CIA missions in Laos and then was able to sell them illegally and start his nest egg that way, or he's D.B. Cooper. So what are we left with? As always, when Forrest Fenn is involved, the answer is just more questions. Just when you think Jack Stoof is the legitimate finder of the treasure, we're hit with location tracking evidence that can lead you to believe that all this began in the spring of 2019 and Forrest may be involved in a conspiracy to basically hand the chest over to Jack. But why? Is it simply because Jack was the first one to figure out Home of Brown, and it happened to coincide with one of the unfortunate deaths of a searcher, and Forrest had decided to end the chase? There are no answers yet, just more questions. What is the secret story that Forrest included with the treasure? Could it actually be a confession by Fenn that he is the enigmatic hijacker D.B. Cooper? Whatever the answer may be, one thing is certain. Forrest would be absolutely loving the fact that we're even considering it. What, what does he say about himself? It's not, it's not who you are, it's who they think you are. We finally arrived at the blaze. What is it? Where is it? And how can you find it? Plus, we reveal never-before-disclosed information that will shed a completely new light on the treasure hunt. That's next time on the season finale of X Marks the Spot. X Marks the Spot, The Legend of Forrest Fenn, is a Cavalry Audio production. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Jason Seagraves. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Our associate producer is Margot Carmichael. Zach McNeese is our sound editor, mixer, and post-production supervisor. 
music by Blue Dot Sessions and Soundstripe, with additional original music by Bruce Whitkin. I'm Brandon Morgan, your writer and narrator. Thanks for listening.